Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, uh, found on page 976 if you are using one of uh, the Pew Bibles. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Last Sunday, uh, I began a new sermon series on the mission of the church. However, as I explained last week, the, the focus of this series is not so much on what the church does when it gathers, but rather on what the church does when it is scattered. When the church gathers together, its mission is to make and equip mature disciples of Jesus Christ through the ministry of the Word and prayer. This is the mission given to us by Jesus Himself. We, we saw this at the end of Luke's Gospel. We, we see it also at the end of, of Matthew. We are His witnesses to go forth proclaiming His death and resurrection and calling people to repentance and faith in His name. Or as Jesus puts it in Matthew's Gospels, we are to go and make disciples of all nations. But when you think about it, that mission, that, that call to make disciples, it implies that when we go out, we are to be disciples. If the church's mission, when it is gathered, is to make disciples, then clearly its mission, when it scatters, is to be disciples out in the community. And last Sunday, we saw that this means living a life of repentance and faith. Defining mark of a disciple, that mark which separates a disciple from a non-disciple, that mark is repentance and faith. It is a response of repentant faith to the gospel proclamation that moves a person from being outside to being inside the community of God's people. Further, we saw that this repentance and faith manifests itself. It, it shows itself in a life of new obedience. Not necessarily a, a new list of things to do, but rather a new approach to the items that already fill our lives to overflowing. We are husbands and wives. We are parents and children, we are employees and employers, we are friends and neighbors and, and citizens. These are our various callings. These are our vocations. And it is these vocations that fill our lives. Repentance is, is not so much a, a new calling as it is a new approach to these callings which are already ours. It is an approach that is centered around the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. And so in the weeks that come, we will be exploring in much greater detail what it means for us to, to live these various callings in a way that is transformed by repentance and faith. However, before we get into those details, this morning I want us to see that the reason that repentance and faith transforms our various callings is because repentance and faith first transforms our relationship with God. Repentance and 
faith transforms the way that we relate to the one true and living God who has called us out of darkness into light. So we will see that our new relationship with God, this this new relationship transformed by repentance and faith is a relationship that is now marked by worship, obedience, and dependence. There was a time when I thought I was going to preach on all three of those this morning, and that's why you see that in the uh, outline in the bulletin. But this morning we will instead be focusing just on the first of these. We'll be focusing on what does it mean to say that a life transformed by repentance, that a relationship with God transformed by repentance is a life of worship. I think we will see something of this in our first scripture reading this morning, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. This is the very word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father God, we come before you humbly now, asking that according to your promise, you would not allow your word to return to you void, but that you would attend to it, and that you would cause it to bring forth fruit in our lives, Father. May you use it to strengthen our faith. May you use it to renew our repentance. May you use it to strengthen our resolve that we might live as becomes followers of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first mark of a relationship with God transformed by repentance is worship. In the first chapters of Genesis, right before the the flood that would wipe out all of mankind except for Noah and his family. We are told that, that after the fall, after man's rebellion against God in the garden, that every inclination of man's heart was only evil all the time. The psalmist confirms this judgment when he tells us that none is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks God. All have turned 
aside. Paul also echoes this judgment in his letter to the Colossians when he describes unbelievers as those who are hostile in mind towards God because of unrighteousness. And here in Ephesians, he will tell us that all mankind by nature are children of God's wrath. In Romans, he describes us, he describes unbelievers as enemies of God. That is who we are by nature. That is who we are by birth. That is who we are in Adam. But when God grants a person repentance unto life, When God gives a person that saving faith that unites him to Christ, that person's relationship with God is utterly transformed. The one who previously hated God because he loved the darkness, the one who was previously at enmity with his maker, now becomes a true worshiper. It's that worship that we see here in the opening verses of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. You've probably heard it said before that verses 3 through 14 are actually one run-on sentence as, as Paul just seems to overflow with exaltation. He is amazed by what God has done. Notice the things that are leading him into worship. First of all, he, he thinks of the, the blessings that are all theirs in Christ. And he, he says, listen, it is every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing is ours because God, before the foundations of the world, chose us that we might be holy and blameless. He, he chose us to be his peculiar people, his, his prized possession. He, he chose us in Christ in love. He, he predestined us for adoption as his sons. He he chose us to to be His children to the praise of His glorious grace. He he chose to forgive our sins, to to take that record of debt that stood against us and to nail it to the cross of His beloved Son. He, He made us inheritors of His coming kingdom and He sealed it all with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Paul just goes from from one blessing to the next saying, in Christ every spiritual blessing is ours. And he cannot reflect upon these blessings dispassionately, but but rather with the eyes of repentance, with the eyes of, of a renewed mind, with the eyes that have now seen the lies of Satan for what they are and now regard the gospel of Jesus Christ as it truly is. With the eyes of repentance, Paul gazes upon the spiritual blessings that are his in Christ and his art overflows with worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It just overflows. He overflows with praise. He he overflows with thanksgiving as he reflects upon the wonder of the love that has been lavished upon him, upon the love that has been lavished upon the Ephesians, upon the love that has been lavished upon all who are now united to Christ by faith. It is clear that, that worship is his initial foundational response to the wonder of the gospel that he has believed. We see the same thing in Peter's letter. Turn with me quickly to 1 Peter chapter 1. 
In 1 Peter chapter 1, Paul the apostle to the Gentiles, Peter the apostle to the Jews, Peter says the same exact thing as he reflects upon the wonder of of what has been given to him in Christ. Notice how he begins in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Again, you can feel the the overflowing exuberance of Peter as he writes. He is overflowing with worship as he reflects upon the wonder of the truths that he now sees with the eyes of repentance. He now knows Jesus Christ to be Lord and Savior. He knows himself to be a sinner saved by grace. He knows that it is through Jesus Christ's resurrection that he has now been born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And as he reflects upon these truths, he overflows with worship. Worship is the initial response of repentance to the wonder of the gospel. And we could go any number of places. We could take a tour through the Psalms and we could see how we are constantly being called to praise God for who He is and for what it is that He has done. We could look at the prophets and see how they they call the people to repentance again and again so that they might worship. We could just tour through all of the various epistles and, and letters and see how again and again those whose eyes have been opened to the wonder of the gospel overflow with praise. It is the initial response of, of a life transformed by repentance to worship God. So this morning, I want us to ask three questions as we, as we seek to understand that, as we seek to understand what worship is to look like in our lives. And I want to ask first, simply, what is this worship that we are talking about? Of course, there's a sense in which all of life is worship. That, that worship is now just our new posture towards God. That, that, that all of life is now lived before His face. It's now lived humbly bowing before Him. We do all that we do in the name of the Lord. And we do all that we do to the praise of, of His glory. All of life, in some sense, has become worship. However, there is another sense in which it is good to think of worship as a special act, as something that we do at a a specified time. It's what we're doing even now. We have gathered for, for worship. This is a worship 
service. Yes, all of life is lived to the praise of God's glory. Yes, in all of life we are overflowing with thanksgiving. But yet there are still those times when we gather for the special act of worship. And and think of what that means. What is worship? To to worship is to ascribe worth. It is to to regard as of supreme value. And therefore at the heart of all true worship is the, the offering up of praise. We proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness into light. We we describe Him as as worthy. We describe Him as good. We describe Him as beautiful. We ascribe to Him the, the, the praise that is due His name. And we give Him thanks for what He has done for us. We thank Him that He regarded us when we were yet His enemies. We we thank Him that that when we were uh, even in love with the darkness, He came to us anyway and He rescued us from the pit even when we weren't looking for it. He he gave us eyes to see. He, He gave us hearts to believe. He gave us ears to hear the wonder of the Gospel. He reconciled us to Himself and we we give Him thanks. And then we make petitions to Him. That's not, that's not leaving worship behind. It's not like we come worshiping and then go on to make our petitions. But even our petitions are an act of worship. John Piper says that, that you glorify the, the goodness of a fountain by drinking deeply of the water that it provides. When we come to God with our petitions, when we come to Him saying that our our satisfaction can be found only in Him, when we come saying that that His love for us is our only comfort in life and death, when we come to Him asking Him to, to work for our good in all things, whether it be physical sickness or whether it be fear or anxiety or whether it be material hardship, whatever, uh, whatever the trouble, whatever the futility that, that, uh, that is uh, hindering us at the moment, when we come to Him with our petitions, We worship Him. We honor Him as our our great King. And when we entrust ourselves to Him as our only hope, we proclaim His glory for all to see. This is the special act of worship. And we do this not only in all of life, but we do it at specified times. And so when are those times? When do we do this worship? When do we move from all of life to the glory of our King? to this special act that we call worship. And again, I would suggest to you that what we are doing right here, right now, is the first and and foremost time when we are called upon to worship God in this way. We we gather for worship as God's people on the Lord's day. We, We see this pattern throughout the Scriptures. The Old Testament people of God could not go to the, the temple every Lord's Day. The, the temple was in Jerusalem and there was only one and some of them lived great distances from it. But they, they could gather on for holy convocation on the Lord's Day. And it was out of this, this pattern of, of gathering for, for worship that we see the, the synagogue system develop. And, and we see this that this is in place in Jesus' own day as, as the, the people of God gather regularly in the synagogue. It was their habit. It was their custom to to gather weekly for worship. And when the first Christians began to to gather together to worship Jesus Christ as the risen Lord, they continued this pattern with one exception. That they now began to gather not on the last day of the week, not on the Sabbath, 
But on the first day of the week, the day of the Lord's resurrection, what they called the Lord's Day. And this has been the pattern of Christ's church ever since. This weekly gathering. And it was this weekly gathering that was really the the minimum, the the minimum gathering not to be neglected, according to the author of Hebrews. That, That we were to gather together weekly on the Lord's Day. It's assumed by by Paul throughout his letters that that those to whom he writes, that the saints and the churches will be gathering together at least weekly on the Lord's Day. In fact, throughout much of church history, they, they have gathered more than just once. A week In our present culture, if you receive a, a survey from Barna or from some other group, they, they will consider active participation in church if you show up twice a month. You're active if you show up twice a, a month. But throughout much of church history, they were showing up not only once a week, but they were showing up multiple times a week. They were, in some cases, gathering daily. In Geneva, during Calvin's time there, They offered worship services daily. In fact, they offered two times a day. They had offered one in the morning for those who who could come then, who couldn't take a break in the middle of the day because they'd be out in the field somewhere. And they'd offer another one in the middle of the day for those who could come then. But they they allowed the church to gather multiple times, to, to gather for worship, because they understood that this special act of worship was to be a defining mark of the one whose relationship with God had been transformed by repentance. But why is it? Why is this defining mark so important? Let's let's think about it this way. First of all, why is it important that we gather? Why is it important that we actually come together as the people of God? I've heard people say before, you know, I I can worship better on the mountain by myself. And I don't doubt that. There are certainly less distractions. You can... Choose all the music. We're not going to do a song that you don't like. You get to pick the verses so you don't ever have to go to those places that you find boring or inconvenient for your faith. No doubt you can worship on your own, but there's something about gathering. The author of Hebrews clearly sees the gathering together as as something that leads to to mutual encouragement. It's something that, that leads to stirring one another up, he says. Why? Well, it's because when we come together, we are able to remember together. We're able to remember the gospel. We're able to be reminded of what we do not know. We're able to be reminded of what we too easily forget. I've used the illustration before, but I I think it makes the point. You've you've probably had that experience of, of, of Christmas caroling where you're going throughout a neighborhood singing songs. And if you were asked to do that on your own, you would never be able to make it through the songs. You couldn't remember all the words. But when somehow, when we come together, enough of the people remember enough of the words, enough of the time that we're able to actually sing. And that's the way the Christian life works. Enough of the people remember enough of the truths of the gospel, enough of the time that we're able to encourage one another. At those moments where you're anxious, someone else is deeply feeling the peace of God and they were able to comfort you with the comfort that they are experiencing. At those times when you are hurting, someone else has experienced the, the salve of God's grace and they are able to share with you the comfort that they have 
received. It is important for us to gather because it, it allows us to mutually encourage one another. It allows us to, to speak the truth into one another's lives. And it allows us to sit under the teaching of those who have been given to the church as gifts by God himself for that very purpose. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul just says it. He says, listen, God himself has given pastors and shepherds to the church as gifts. That they might be built up in their faith, that they might no longer be children, that we might grow towards maturity. And so we gather that we might sit under the, the, the teaching of those whom God himself has given to the church. And so that we might speak the truth with love into one another's lives. And so that we might be encouraged. And it is that need for encouragement, that, that, that need to, to be reminded of what is true, that makes the order of worship so important. You see, when we get together, it's, it's not just a, a time to express the, our, our feelings. It's not just a time to, to, to celebrate the wonder of what God has done to us. But as you can tell, there's an order. We, we have an order. We, we print it every week in the, the bulletin. We, we follow a certain pattern. Why do we do that? Well, it's not to quench the Spirit. I know some of you may be wondering about that. It's not why we do it. We're, we're, not, we're not so committed to an order because we're, we're afraid of spontaneity, but rather, we understand that, that to truly be encouraged by the truth, we must encounter that truth. And the order of our worship service allows us to do that. As we, as we gather together, we, we are reminded that it is God himself who calls us here. Through the words of his prophets and apostles, he, he calls to us, come and worship me. And when we hear that call, we are reminded that we are welcome in the presence of the living God. It is like God's scepter held out to Esther. You are welcome here. Come and worship me. And so when that scepter is held out to us in the call to worship, we respond with thanksgiving. We respond with a song of praise. We usually respond with a confession of our faith and who he is and who he is for us. But even as we confess our faith, and even as we celebrate the wonder that he has invited us into his presence, we begin to readily acknowledge that we are not who we ought to be. The psalmist says that it is he who has clean hands and a pure heart who is able to enter into the presence of, of the king, and that's not us. And so we remind ourselves, and we avail ourselves again of the blood of Christ shed for us through which we have the forgiveness of sins. We confess our sins and we receive the assurance of grace that is ours through his sacrifice. And this leads us to celebrate the gospel again together as we sing songs of praise that, that remind us of the truths and, and work out the implications of being those who've been washed by the blood. And of course, this then leads us to, to give back to him the first fruits of that which he has given to us as a, as a symbolic representation that if the first fruits are his, so is the whole. We give that offering as an expression that our whole selves are now devoted to him, that he is indeed our king and our God. And then we give expression to that devotion by sitting under his means of grace. An elder comes forward to, to lead us in prayer 
to, to bring our petitions and our cares before him, but petitions and cares that, that begin by focusing not on our present needs, but on our desire to see his kingdom come. And only within the, that expression of desire do we then look to our own particular needs as they relate to the desire to see his kingdom come. And then having made known our petitions to him, we sit under his word. We sit under his sacraments from time to time. We, we, we hear and we receive the grace that is ours in Christ. You see, a, a sermon is different than a Bible study because a sermon is meant to exalt the glory of the king. It, it is meant to lead us into worship. It is meant to be itself an expression of worship. And so when the sermon is done, we respond to that glory with a song of response that is fitting to the message that has been preached. And we understand that our, our order is not set in stone. We, we understand that other churches do it differently, but we also understand that the order is not arbitrary. The order matters because the order leads us into worship according to the truth. And so corporate worship on the Lord's Day is our first response. It is, it is the expression of repentance. We come before him to, to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. But of course, weekly worship on the Lord's Day is not the only special time where we worship. We, we also have other times set apart for worship. One of those times can be when our family gathers or when a smaller group of the church gathers together to, to worship. Now let me say right up front that, that the message of, of family worship can induce a lot of guilt in people, and I understand that. I am first in line. I understand how hard it is to, to have family worship. I would be readily embarrassed if you saw my own family's schedule of worship. We have not been nearly as consistent as I would have liked to us to have been over the years. In fact, in my family, my kids will, will tell you that, that my many renewed commitments to family worship are something of a running joke. Oh, here we go again. Dad's, Dad's got the bug again. We're going we're gonna to try this again, and it'll work for a few days, maybe a few weeks, and the best of times for a few months. But we, we fail regularly. And so, so my point this morning is not to, to make you feel guilty, but rather to... to hopefully cast before you a vision of the opportunity. Family worship is a true good. It is a true blessing for all the same reasons that corporate worship is a blessing. It, together we get to remember. Together we get to celebrate. Together we get to, to soak in the wonders of the gospel and praise him for the things that he has done for us in Christ. We get to overflow with thanksgiving for every spiritual blessing which is ours. And if you do that daily, great, you will benefit. But it is a blessing no matter how often you practice it. And so if you haven't done it before, if you haven't done it at a time, do it tonight. And if you don't do it tomorrow, let tomorrow worry about itself. Worship God together. But of course, we not only worship together, but we also worship privately. We, we have times of, of personal worship. Again, the same elements are involved. Times where we, we remember the glory. We can sing. One of the reasons that we print the lyrics in the bulletin each Sunday is so that you can take these home and that you can use them with you. You can meditate upon the words of the songs that we have sung together. 
It's one of the reasons that we, we give that bulletin to you each week. And you can use those in your own personal worship. You may never sing out loud. That's okay. But you can remember the words. Paul tells us that it is through spiritual songs that the word begins to dwell in us richly. God has given us music, and one thing that music does is it, it forms us. It, it, it shapes us. And as we sing songs, as we, as we hear songs in our head, it shapes us with the truths of the gospel. And so we have these special times of worship, these times set aside. Yes, all of life is worship, but we need these special moments where we gather for the specific purpose of, of proclaiming his goodness, of celebrating his, his blessings, of soaking in his gospel, of being reminded of what is ours, of, of mutually encouraging one another. In fact, I would, I would tell you that you know, it's been said that we ought not to go to church to worship, but that we ought to go to church worshiping. And I understand what they mean by that. If you haven't been worshiping God throughout the week, then it's going to be hard to flip the switch on Sunday morning. But let me suggest to you that when you least feel like worshiping is when you most need to go. You see, this is not merely an opportunity for you to express what is already in your heart. It is an opportunity for you to implant the truths of the gospel that propel you to worship in your heart deeply. And when you are discouraged, when you are anxious, when you are fearful, when the joy of, of your salvation seems like a distant memory, you most need to go to worship. You most need to gather together with, with other believers, whether it's the whole congregation or whether it's just your family. You need to gather that you might be encouraged that you might remember the truth, that you might celebrate the blessings that are yours in Christ. Why? Why is it so important that we do this? Why is it so important that we worship? Well, first and, and simply, we worship God because He is worthy of our worship. In some sense, it ought to be incomprehensible for, for you not to worship. By its very nature, praise demands to be expressed. You, you know this from other areas of your life. When you take delight in something, it comes out of your mouth. When, when you are amazed by something, it, it shows itself in your life. Praise demands to be expressed. Delight in a worship-worthy object simply overflows out of the heart and spills out of the mouth. It's the way that we are wired. It's the way that we are created. It doesn't always look the same. My worship may not look like your worship, but we are wired to worship. And so if we are not worshiping, it is not first a failure of duty, but it is a failure of delight. If you are not worshiping, it is because you are not delighting in the Lord your God. And so the solution is not to try harder. The, the solution is not to try and feel more worshipful. But rather the solution is to taste and to see that the Lord is good. And where do you do that? You do it in worship services. 
You do it where the church gathers together to set their eyes upon Jesus and to behold his wonderful face. You, you do it in a place where you know the gospel will be proclaimed, where you know the, the truth will be heard, where you know the beauty of Jesus will be on full display. If you don't feel worshipful, if worship is struggle, go to worship. Go to worship, for it is there that your heart will be softened. It is there that you will taste and see the goodness of the Lord. And it is there that you will be drawn in to the worship that is the fountain of the Christian life. That's really the second reason this is so important. Why does, does God call us into worship? Yes, it's because he is worthy, but it's also because he loves us. And he knows that it is in worship that we will find the strength for the Christian life that we have been called to. Worship strengthens your faith by reminding you of what we have believed and reminding you of what we have been given. It reminds you of what we have been promised. It renews our repentance when it shows us the ways that we have fallen short and it motivates new obedience and long endurance by, by showing us the wonder of God's love for us in Christ. We see this in passages like Romans 12, 1 and 2, where, where Paul says, Therefore, in view of God's mercies, offer yourself to Him. We will consider those passages more deeply next week. But this morning, I simply want you to, to notice this, that God calls you into worship. He calls you to, to these special times set aside for proclaiming His excellency. These special times set aside for, for, for soaking in his gospel because he knows not only that he is worthy, but he knows that we need it. We simply cannot live the Christian life without it. If, if the Christian life to you is a burden that you struggle to bear, if you are weary, if you are heavy laden, set your eyes upon Jesus. Look him. Allow his beauty to draw you into worship afresh. For it is in worship that you will find strength and zeal for the Christian life. And that is why the call to worship is not merely a duty, but it is good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for calling us into worship. We thank you, Father, that, that you have set aside these times and these places that, that you might put your glory on full display. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.